had been trained by the prophet Elijah. And that training had lasted for about 10 years. Elijah had been a prophet who had thundered through the land and he was confronting the people who turned their backs upon God. And when he spoke, it literally was like thunder. He was known as the, the prophet of fire. Whoops, Daisy, turn this on. Graham went up just there yet. Ah, fantastic. The prophet of fire. You'll remember how uh, on Mount Carmel, he had a contest between the 450 prophets of Baal and, and the 400 prophets of Asherah. And he said to the people of Israel, he said, uh, make up your minds. Who are you going to serve? And uh, he had the prophets of Baal build an altar and they put a bull on it. And he said, I'm going to build an altar and we'll both call on our gods and the God who answers by fire. He is God. And of course, the prophets of Baal built their altar and they put a bull on it and they started shouting uh, for their God. But of course, there isn't another God. There's only one God. So at about noon, uh, Elijah began to um, just mock them a little bit. He said, you need to shout louder. Maybe your God is asleep or perhaps he's away on a holiday. And of course, there wasn't, they don't have a God. The God, the, the Baal was, wasn't a God at all. There's only one God. And finally, in the evening, uh, Elijah stood up and he prayed that God would come by fire, that the people would know. And just to ensure that there was no funny business, they poured water all over the altar. Uh, not just once, but I think three times. So the thing was absolutely drenched. And he began to pray and God answered by fire. The fire fell and the whole altar, the offering, everything was consumed, the wood, even the stones. And then they captured the prophets of Baal, they took them down off the hill and they were all put to death. He was uh, the prophet of fire. But Elisha wasn't like that. He was a prophet who was very pastoral in his heart. He had a lot of compassion for the pain of people. He cared for people. And he performed several miracles to help people who were in trouble. And we come now to this miracle, which he performed for a lady who was in real difficulty, real difficulty. And there are in these verses lessons which are kind of challenging me, and I hope maybe they will challenge you in a number of different directions. So let's just turn to the text and remind ourselves what it says. Verse one, the wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Now, this is a really sad story. One of the prophets, and we're not sure which group of the prophets he belonged to, because in chapter 2, we read that there was a group in Bethel and another group in Jericho. So what do we know about this prophet who had died? Well, we know that, whoops, Daisy, we go back there. Oh, yes, we know that he was a, a godly man because he revered the Lord. He was a godly man. 
But sadly, he had died in debt. And his widow didn't have any money at all. She was flat broke. Now, we know that the Jews are supposed to show mercy towards one another, but this lady was in danger of losing her voice. It's very hard to imagine what that might be like if you have family. Just imagine somebody, somebody coming to take your, your children away. Awful. I, I think that for this lady, probably her situation was so bad, she felt that her best days were behind her. Now, I know that there are Christians today, very often from my generation, who look back and think about the good old days. Oh, but you know, if I remember correctly, when I think back to the good old days, there was a whole group of people who themselves were looking further back to what they thought were the good old days. So Christianity isn't about looking back to the, to the good old days. Christianity is about joy because Jesus came to preach the good news, not the bad news. And a mood of despair and dejection, such as this poor widow felt, is not normally the mood of authentic biblical Christianity. Now, John Wesley said, um, that sour godliness is the devil's religion. It doesn't owe its inception to true spiritual people or to truly spiritual practice. He said, I suspect that sour godliness originated among unhappy, semi-religious people who had just enough religion to make them miserable, but not enough to make them good. I thought that was quite, quite amusing. I think that our enemy is a, a joy thief. I think he wants to uh, steal joy uh, from our lives. He likes to convince us that we've been cut off from our source of security, from happiness and from joy. And he works not just against individuals, he actually works today against church families. And congregations can sometimes end up a little bit like that widow. I've heard people bemoan the fact that we don't really have prayer warriors today. Well, actually we do. And I could introduce you to some of them. When I was in ministry, I, I had my secret weapon. And that was a man and a woman who would pray. And I would ring them up and say, can you pray for? And I wouldn't maybe have to tell them names. I mightn't be able to do that. I mightn't even be able to tell them what the circumstances were. But they would pray. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The disillusioned church family feels they have little to give to a needy world. There is fear about speaking out, lest offense is caused. And yet we sing songs about freedom, but we don't seem to really experience freedom. And the tragedy is that the children are very often the first to suffer. They become a little bit like the widow's boys. The creditor is coming to take my two boys as slaves. And there is an enemy 
And what he wants to do is to enslave our young people. There is peer pressure. Pressure, the pressure of fashion to get the latest whatever it is. The, pr the pressure of the pagan morality of, of our contemporary culture. I can remember about 20 years ago, we had a, a lovely young girl come to study medicine in Glasgow and she came to worship at the Finley. She came from a lovely Christian home, so she was quite protected. And she was, she's now a medical consultant in Northern Ireland. But when she came to Glasgow, she was just young. And in that first term in the halls of residence, uh, there was a party going on and she was invited to go to this party, but because she was a medic and they have to work quite hard, she, she couldn't go, she worked to do. And she went down to the communal kitchen the next morning to get breakfast and all the other girls were there. And you know what they were talking about? They were talking about how many different sexual partners they'd had the previous evening. And this young girl was absolutely shocked. This was so far out of her experience. The, the creditor wanted to turn those children into slaves. And the enemy, he wants to turn our children and our young people into his slaves too. I think it's really important that we pray for our young people, children in schools and young people in universities because they're under all sorts of pressure. Well, what did the widow do? Could it be that there's something here for us? You see, this woman was absolutely desperate. And in turning to Elisha, God's prophet, she was actually turning to God. She was stating her needs to God and she didn't pray with polished phrases. No, her prayer was a cry of grief and pain and agony of heart that was squeezed from her heart. That's how she prayed. Someone has said that the church today is so busy organizing that we've forgotten how to agonize. And this lady agonized in prayer. Do you think God is looking for that kind of praying today? The widow explained her circumstances to Elisha and how they had changed. And she had no one but God to lean on. And she was very honest in that she faced the facts. She didn't indulge in make-believe. And yet today, there are churches up and down this land indulging in make-believe. Do you know it's possible to move the chairs around, to update the music, to raise our hands and worship and serve donuts and coffee after the service and tell ourselves that because the meetings are brighter, that they must be getting better. But it doesn't follow. It doesn't follow. Tragically, there are churches today whose priority is to maintain the ministry. But God has not called us to that. If we are focused on maintaining the ministry, our focus will really be on ourselves. But the church isn't about us. The church is about him. And we've been reminded this morning that there is no competition in God's work. How important that is. 
We're not called to keep the, the church going. And if that's our mindset, God forgive us. We are called to be kingdom builders, agents of change. We want to see God's kingdom. Remember what Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. Who's, who builds the church? It's Jesus. But he uses people. We make ourselves available to him for him to use. And surely there is in our hearts a hunger for more, much more than we have. I don't know about you, but I'm really encouraged this morning because I see more seats filled than the last time I was here. But you know something? It's great to count the number of seats filled. But what about all the folks who aren't there? Who don't know? Who don't come? Isn't there in your heart just some kind of a longing that God would come and do what we come to? To pour out his Holy Spirit in power. A hunger for more. And yet, that hunger isn't always present. A man called Vance Havner, an American man who's now with the Lord, said, you need to listen carefully to this, the church is so subnormal that if, it, that if it ever got back to New Testament normal, it would seem to some people to be abnormal. And I'll say that one again. The church is so subnormal that if it ever got back to the New Testament normal, it would seem to some people to be abnormal. Now, this woman was desperate. And when you're desperate, you're not bothered about respectability or how you appear to somebody else. It says the wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead. You know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys and his slaves. She was absolutely desperate. She didn't take the prophet to one side and to whisper politely into his ear. She, she just cried out to him, not caring who heard her, because she was desperate. Now, how did the prophet respond? Well, Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? And this is really interesting, her response. She said, your servant has nothing there at all. She said, except a little oil. I've got nothing of, of any value, nothing of any worth. I've just got a little oil. Now, that's really important. Why is it important? Because you need to know that oil in the, in the scriptures is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. A symbol of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 says that as soon as we come to Jesus, we're sealed with the Spirit, and he's the guarantor of our inheritance. That the Holy Spirit comes. But there's always the possibility that we shall know more of the Holy Spirit. Now look at verse 3. Elisha said, go round and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't just ask for a few. Now that last phrase is really important. Go around and ask your neighbors for jars, empty vessels. Don't ask for just a few. In other words, 
expect an abundance. Now, I wonder that when it comes to praying for New Beginnings Church, how do you pray? Do you pray, Lord, will you bring one person in to encourage us, one person to come to faith? We were so encouraged. Why would you pray for one when you can pray for 10? Why? There's a wonderful little verse in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. And it says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Listen, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can imagine. So what do you imagine? Are you imagining one or two or maybe even three? You see, the more we imagine, bearing in mind that God works out with and beyond our imagination, which means actually sometimes he does stuff that I don't think he should do, but he's God and it's his right. But the text seems to challenge us that if we are dreaming big dreams, that's good because God is able to do even bigger things than our biggest dream. If that's true, and it is, then why would we pray for just ones and twos? I, I heard from Graham this morning, he took me in next door, and I heard how God is providing you with a, a complete new facility that's going to be state of the art, uh, with absolutely no asbestos, and somebody else is paying for it. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Isn't that God? Only God does that kind of thing. So how are you praying? Now, William Carey, the father of modern mission said attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. Now note this that the Lord wanted to give this woman as much oil as she asked for or at least as much oil as would fill all the pots that she gathered. I don't know how many pots there were, 10 pots. 20 pots, 30 pots. Now remember the oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It was used to provide light in homes. Uh, in the New Testament, we learned that oil was put on wounds and it was used for cooking, but it was also applied as an anointing on priests, perhaps symbolizing their need of the Holy Spirit, the unction of the Spirit. There's an awful lot of symbolism here. The prophet then said, go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars as each is filled. Put it to one side. Now, I wonder, did those instructions strike her as being a bit strange? Do you think they made sense to her? Do you think she had an inkling, an understanding of what was about to happen? Five and six, she left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there's not another jar left. The oil then stopped flowing. What an extraordinary story. Well, now let me point out just some very simple things that I hope will come as an encouragement and a challenge to you. The first thing is this, that she did 
what she was told. Now, if you think about it, she didn't care what her neighbors were thinking. She didn't care that her neighbors might look at her as being a bit odd when she went around, knocked on the doors, excuse me, have you got empty, any empty pots? I need all you can give me. Are you sure you don't have any more? What about some big pots? You have a little bit of water that one, could you tip it out and, and give me the big pot too? She just went around asking all the neighbors, and I'm almost certain uh, that the, the neighbors would have said, well, what do you want the, what do you, what, what do you want the pots for? Well, the, the prophet of God told me to get the pots. You're, you're kidding. I mean, what are you going to do with all the pots? I think she went around the whole village getting as many pots as she could. There was not a hint of reluctance. Why? Because she did what she was told. And then secondly, and this I think is really significant for us, she prepared for an abundance. Now, Elisha the prophet had said, don't just go and ask for a few. So I suspect that as she went around her village, she got every empty pot, every empty jar, every empty uh, bottle that she could find, and even the, the pans, the cooking pots as well. Now, the challenge of that for us today is this. I wonder, have we got the just a few mentality when it comes to outreach, when it comes to the community where God has placed us? Have we got just a few with just a few mentality. Could it be that our expectancy is the only limitation on what God is prepared to do in us and through us? Could it be that our expectancy is the only limitation of what God is prepared to do in us and through us? I mean, if we're asking God to pour out his spirit in an unusual way, on New Beginnings Church, so that the Spirit of God flows out the door and into the community. If we don't expect Him to answer, then can we say that our prayer is a prayer of faith? Verse 7, she went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what's left. Isn't that marvelous? Well, then the third lesson we learn is this. By faith, she used what she had. I wonder how she felt pouring the small amount of oil into the first part and then into the second part. I wonder what, what went through her mind as she lifted up that small jug and thought, well, look at all these pots. I've just got this tiny little jar of oil. The point is this, that she used what she had. She didn't sit down and imagine all that she could do if only she had a 45-gallon drum of oil. No, she took what she had. Do you remember when Moses was challenged by God to go back to Egypt? And he thought, how are people going to know that, that I come at your command here? 
And what did the Lord say to him? He said, what have you got in your hand, didn't he? And he had a stick. So maybe the Lord would say to us, what have you got in your hand? Because this woman had a little jar of oil and she used what she had and God turned it into a whole lot. Do you remember? The apostle said to the Lord Jesus in Luke 17, increase our faith, he replied. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. And today, I think there's a little bit of confusion when it comes to faith. People will say, you don't have enough faith. You need to have a big faith. But that's not what the Bible says. If people say you need to have a big faith, it means that they're placing their faith in faith. But we place our faith in Jesus. And Jesus says, you don't need to have a big faith. You just need to have a little faith and you need to place it in Jesus. Because God works through that. So by faith, she used what she has. So the size of our faith doesn't matter. It is the object of our faith, the one in whom we place our faith that matters and what he chooses to do. And then fourthly and finally, she obeyed in private before going public. All this happened behind closed doors and her boys helped her out. I think that often God deals with us personally and privately so that there can be a reality in our relationship with him. It's all too easy to be carried along, as it were, by the enthusiasm of others in the church family. And it's great. But you know, God wants more than that from us. God wants more than that from us. He wants a relationship that isn't simply sustained and maintained because you get a little spiritual food on a Sunday morning. He wants us all to become self-feeders so that we engage with the word for ourselves and get to know him. Because the more real he becomes, in our lives, the closer we draw to him, and we can't lead anyone closer to Christ than we are. And that's the challenge. But isn't it wonderful that this widow and that society in her day didn't think much of widows. They were kind of on the edge, didn't maybe matter a great deal. Matter to God. And because she was utterly dependent God used her. Now, I'm not really sure how God wants to apply this message and the lessons from this to us individually. But I know that he's saying something. And my prayer for you is that when you begin to pray for the church here, that you won't be praying little prayers. That should be big, big, big prayers. The psalmist said, Give me a sign of your goodness, O Lord, that others might see it. I pray that for you just now.
Let's do that. Father, we are so grateful that we turn to the scriptures and we discover that you choose to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. The Bible is filled with examples. We thank you for this woman in her utter desperation, new enough to call upon you. And we praise you for her experience of performing a miracle that was beyond her imagination and how you impacted her and use, used her story done through the centuries to impact the lives of other ordinary people. Oh, Lord, we, we want to pray that in your mercy you would help us. We know that you love us too much to leave us where we are. Please, Father, in your mercy, would you help us so that we might have a hunger for more than we have, that we might have a dissatisfaction with where we are spiritually. And we pray that by grace, you'd help us. And grandfather, that you would have mercy on the community around about us. Please pour out your spirit. You've done it before. Please, Lord, do it again for the glory of your own great name. We ask these things in the precious and lovely name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.